Oops. Good morning, Katarina. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Jamie. Hello, everyone. Hello. How are you today, Victoria? Hey, sorry, I'm with your moderator. I was trying to select the topics. Isn't there a rejuvenation or something like that here as a topic? I, I can't. Maybe house. Okay. How are you? Welcome everyone. Welcome, welcome everyone. Okay. Good, good, good. Can you hear me? Is rejuvenation oh, okay. Yes, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Can you hear you perfectly? Um, did you say rejuvenation is a topic option in Clubhouse? That's a very specific topic option. It's not. But they are a very specific one for some areas. But it's not an option. How can we, can we suggest uh, topic options? That's a really good idea. I'm going to do that too. Because, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be creative with the topic options, but... Uh, sometimes it would be nice to have a few more. Yeah, right? Like more specific ones. Mm -hmm. Not just engineering in general, for example, or just biology in general. Like, would be would be cool to have like more subtopics. Even just to let you custom make your own ones? Ooh! Mm -hmm. Because something I find is that sometimes the emoji that goes along with the topic word isn't the vibe I'm going for. And so yeah. that would be really great to be able to make. Hi, Christoph. How are you today? Thank you. Hey, Hi, I'm uh, fine. Chris. Thank you. Very pleased to meet you. I'm Jamie. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, meet Jamie, meet Victoria. Um, nice meet you. They will... Hey. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> and uh, we'll wait like a few minutes until we start for real. And um, yeah, if that's okay. Yeah, that's perfect. What time is it? Six hours later, right? 7 p.m.? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, 7, yeah. Okay, cool. How are you? Uh, I'm in Zurich. In Switzerland. Oh, so pretty, wonderful. That's nice. <laughs> We're getting a lot of speakers in Switzerland lately. <laughs> yeah, I heard the weather's improving. That the weather's nicer now. We're all from different areas, Christoph. I'm in Scotland and Catherine's in, and uh, oh. you're, you're in New York as well, aren't you, Victoria? I'm in Oregon. Oregon, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm about to go outside because it's not raining. Ah, okay. Have you had a good day so far, Christoph? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really busy right now because I'm. Um, so, so the the project I'm presenting today is just was just part of my PhD, and um, so I'm gonna uh, and I'm for for postdoc. I'm actually moving to Boston soon, so I I'm still sort of finishing stuff up, uh, finishing up stuff here, and then and then moving in July if everything works out. Wow, that, this is only part of it. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Boston is is okay. I think to adapt from Europe to Boston is pretty easy. Oh. I feel it feels like a North European city. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, in in terms of sizes, like everything in Switzerland is, is tiny, right? I mean, <laughs> um, with a with a population of around seven million, like uh, it's still Boston is is almost as big as Switzerland, <laughs> I guess. So I, 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 I think it feels like a, like a smallest. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really curious how it's gonna, how it's gonna turn out. <laughs> uh, which, uh, which, are you going? Are you going? Um, I'm going to the to the Whitehead Institute at uh, at MIT. Nice, nice. Katarina, do you have an echo? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Okay, think it's so. gone. Yeah, it's gone. You had, you had some really crazy echo for a second there, but it's gone. The ghost has left the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, friends of mine used to live in Boston, but right now I think everyone left for um, for their like assistant professor positions and stuff. But yeah, it will be it will be Boston is pretty pretty okay. It's not too stressful. <laughs> the weather is not great, like like <laughs> at the moment or generally. Well, the winter. Well, the winter. Is Annoying, right? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but isn't there really good public transit there? Boston, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like similar to Europe. I feel like that's why I think that it is. I haven't been, but from what I understand, it seems like that would be something that would be make it a a smoother transition. Is that in larger European, northern European cities I've been to, there's such fantastic public transit. And so I think Boston has that as well. And the center of town is laid out with um, consideration to people actually using it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I mean, here actually, like only few people actually own cars because the, yeah, the city also makes it hard to move around by car. So they, they want you to take public transport and actually most most people do it. So it's really, it's really nice to have everyone use it. Yeah, I love that. I, I remember that of visiting Zurich. I think okay, in one minute, everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll start in around one minute. And um, yeah, this will be a really exciting. It's such a, such a interesting and cool research. 
actually <laughs> fighting. So did 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 you get a lot of like was this paid by rejuvenation type of grants or you? Uh, actually, this specific one was paid by by Volkswagen. So the oh, so there's wow. like there's like a foundation from them where they where they fund science and and this was this was one of those projects but sort of now it's it's so as the project went on it it also went into a relatively big uh, european grant so funded by the eu the the erc advanced grant um where actually now we have we have quite a few people working working sort of in the direction i was i was sort of starting with this particular project interesting that's so interesting that vv so did they were they mandated to have or do they do this for tax break or just in general they just do this uh the the volkswagen i actually that like i, I i'm actually not quite sure how how the connection from the foundation to volkswagen itself is going but apparently at some point they just laid off some money that sort of was I don't I don't know where the money from the from the company came from, um, and the, and this pool of money sort of is is maintained by this foundation that that then uses it to fund science, um, but I'm actually not quite sure whether there's an actually actually control right now of the car company still over over that pool of money or whether it's sort of like a own type of foundation like. Yeah, maybe like 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 Zuckerberg Shan Foundation or something. I mean, they fund single cell science, and the, but it's not not connected to Facebook anymore. So it's really sort of well, yeah, sort Volkswagen of more like that. Has, Volkswagen, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay. Yeah, no, you yeah, I was going to say they have to make good on their name, you know, because now they, you know, they did um, that little bit of trickery uh, yeah, yeah, diesel with the you know emissions the nitrogen oxide emissions little thing and then and then their name saying they were going to change the name to Volkswagen um, <laughs> so so I think maybe that's part of their yeah know. although the, the the foundation I think exists since like the 60s so maybe then <laughs> maybe they did something <laughs> bad then as well yeah. but uh, <laughs> But, but sort of the, the the foundation is not is not sort of a reactive <laughs> reactive answer to to that I guess. Okay, interesting. I think we can start. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored to have our guest speaker here today, uh, talking about his recent research. And let me uh, give you a little bit of information about Dr. Christoph Gebelein. Um, he is um, he did his bachelor degree in biology at the University of Freiburg, and um, his master's degree in chemistry also at the University of Freiburg. And um, later he did his PhD at the ETH. Zurich, um, and his dissertation was about single cell engineering using fluid force microscopy. And this is basically this work, what we are, and based on the publication that we are listening today, is also based on his dissertation. Mm -hmm. 
He won also uh, a few awards and grants. And um, yeah, we just heard that he will soon be working at MIT in Boston. So um, yeah, welcome, Christoph. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with us. And if you don't mind, Victoria will ask you first like a couple of general uh, questions and then, and then the stage is yours for your presentation. Thank you. All right, so welcome. Science Society welcomes you and freut mich. Christoph, <laughs> we're so happy to have you here and excited to hear about your research. So um, before we begin, just to give um, maybe uh, a little bit of a human connection to who you are and what you've been doing. My question is, can you think if you look back in your life, maybe even when you were a child, um, any time, when you noticed that you felt a, a spark that that really interested you in science, that let you know that science was something that you felt connected with, and it could be a relative or a class or anywhere along your path. Um, yeah, I guess um, actually. So, so after after I finished school when I was like eighteen or nineteen, I wasn't I wasn't really really good and interested in school because it sort of bored me a little bit, and then. Uh, I started working like different jobs. So I worked as a postman. I worked as in, in sort of like a warehouse, and and and, and had to do civil services in the uh, in a hospital. And sort of all of those jobs became too really really repetitive, relatively quick, and then that really bored me. So then I then I wanted to change jobs quickly again. Um, and then at at some point I I started studying biology and sort of. At some point, really, sort of going more into to sort of um, yeah, just scientific thinking and always sort of uh, inventing new concepts about stuff. Just like really, really kept me going and fascinated me, um, and and sort of sort of just continues to to amaze me to sort of get to know new stuff every day. So that that really keeps me keeps me in science and keeps me going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank That's, you. That's yeah. Oh, now I have the echo. It's catching. Okay. I hope it's gone. Um, yeah. It's so exciting to hear what our guests answer because there's there is the thread of curiosity and following the curiosity, and so it's just wonderful to be around such passion and know that you're enjoying your work and. And um, that's interesting. So maybe the civil service, the repetitiveness of that, um, you know, reinforced how important it is to be doing work that you love. And so my next question is, how did that work lead you to the path that you are on that brings you to the research that you're currently involved in? Oh, oh, that's a tough one. Actually, sort of, yeah. As you as you mentioned, I I switched from from biology to chemistry. Um, and that was also something where, where sort of, um, I, I wanted to get, get deeper into, uh, into, into sort of new, new ways of view, uh, viewing it at science and viewing biology also that, and that sort of led me, led me to pursue, go, uh, to pursue more, more in, initially it was a more, uh, can, uh, more into the direction of biochemistry and then from biochemistry, actually, I also switched switched again and, and did actually my master thesis in, in microsystems engineering. So I sort of 
keep keep sort of skimming over the sciences in order to to find what I what I actually love. Um, and then after after going doing going from biology to chemistry and then to to engineering, I sort of ended up in in my thesis here in Zurich in a discipline that sort of combines combines these three, um, where we do nanotechnology engineering in order to manipulate single cells. So it's sort of, it's a combination of, of sort of, of going and, and going across sciences and really working on a, on an interdisciplinary, interdi interdisciplinary field. So it's all, so it's like, all it's like, beautiful that, beautiful that, oh, there's the <laughs> that you're able to engage all three of your interests. And did you have a mentor I'm I'm just curious as you're mentioning changing direction were you were you so self-directed that you knew this is what you want to try and this is what you want to try or do you feel that um you know was that challenging to feel that you were doing the right thing for yourself um yeah actually so so I, there there wasn't much tactic involved <laughs> I always just picked picked whatever it sort of caught my interest um I wouldn't say that there was a there was a big uh, big part of a mentor or something. It's just like, um, yeah, we sort of I, I got into synthetic biology actually relatively early in in doing um, in, in in my bachelor's, and sort of synthetic biology is already sort of really cross cross disciplinary, and sort of for, for that point of view, I then I then drafted on I guess towards uh, towards what I'm doing now. Um, so I guess I, I don't have a, have a really clear answer for that, but yeah, I guess, I, I guess just, I just go where I, I see something that, that really, um, amazes me and, and, uh, sort of pushes me on. And may I just say, interdisciplinary, um, topics is what we love the most in science society, isn't that right, Katerina? Yes, definitely. Thank you. It's perfect. You're perfect for you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Those were great questions. I, I did the same thing. So <laughs> I wasn't great in school either until I got really interested in something. And so, yeah, thank you for answering those questions. And the stage is yours for your presentation. Thank you. Okay, so again, uh, thank you uh, for your invitation and welcome to, to my presentation. So um, if you downloaded the slides, then, then right now would be the, the intro slide. Um, so I'm, I'm part of, uh, in, in, of the group of uh, Julia Vorholt, um, where we focus on, on developing nanotechnology for application in life sciences. Um, and we work relatively closely together with the Department of Biomedical Engineering, where we sort of um, switch back and forth in between uh, techniques. So the aim is really to sort of really um, develop techniques that, that actually sort of enable bridging the gap from, from actually just purely um, technology-focused research to actually something that, that can be applied uh, sort of on, on a more or less everyday basis by, by biologists or by by life scientists. Um, so we focus on the physical manipulation and sampling on the single cell level, meaning that we really um, directly interact with single cells um, with miniaturized probes we built. 
Um, and mostly we are working with mammalian cells or eukaryotic cells in cell culture. We also have some uh, projects now where we are working with, with, fun with fungi. Um, but the main part is really on, on, on mammalian cells, I would say. Um, so now I'm going to, to slide two. Um, um, so sort of the, the biggest challenge in our field is, is miniaturization. Um, because sort of the, the volumes we deal with um, are just really, really small. So um, if, you, if you look at the size of a, of a single cell that, that sort of make up the, the bulk of our body, um, their volume will be in the range of, of two to five picoliters or mostly like smaller. So in the picoliter range, which is um, 10 to the power of minus 12 liters. So it's really, really small volume. And sort of these, these spheres I plotted there sort of represent, represent these volumes. Um, and sort of if you, if you look at sort of a milliliter, so uh, thousands of a liter, um, then you can, you, you can still something, it's still a volume you do with every day. If you have a, a microliter, this, this every, every biologist or chemist maybe still knows from the lab is something you can, you can manipulate just still by hand by using a pipette. And if you go to uh, another um, magnitude smaller, you're in the nanoliter range um, where you have um, micro manipulators that can still deal with these volumes. And this is sort of the, out of the range where, where sort of the, the, standard, the standard procedures end. So in the nanoliter ranges, you have um, micro injection devices that are perhaps, uh, for example, used for um, in vitro fertilization of, of embryos. But those cells are really special by, by just being more than a thousand times bigger than, than most cells in our body. And, and then if you're if you then one magnitude smaller again in the picoliter range, then you're actually in the, in the range that is sort of relevant for, for biology and, uh, and chemistry that is happening uh, in, in, inside of single cells. So those mammalian cells we deal with mostly have a volume of around two picoliters, so two to the power of minus twelve liters. Um, and then if you go even smaller, then you're actually at the at the um, that the volume range that that E. coli or or subparts of the of the cell have. Um, and uh, the devices we built actually um, um, specialize in actually manipulating these super small volumes. Um, and we try to also connect um, analyzes uh, platforms of these super small volumes um, that, so uh, to, to sort of create output that actually can, can sort of, um, we can make sense of. So creating um, data sets from, from single cells for, um, through, through omics technology or by microscopy. Um, and the tool we use, we use to do this, so this is the next slide, slide three is um, the fluidic force microscopy technology. Um, and fluidic force microscopy is a technical platform that connects atomic force microscopy with microfluidics. And um, the centerpiece of this technology is the cantilever. And actually the cantilever, since I guess most of you on audio is really, really tough to describe. So I looked it up on Wikipedia. And on Wikipedia, it says, it's a rigid structural element that extends horizontally and is supported at only one end. So it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a super small structure um, that, that, if, that, that looks like, like, a, like an arm that you would just, just straight up uh, 
uh, hold, hold out of your body. It's just really, really small. In our case, the, the cantilever is approximately cell sized. So it's, um, its dimensions are, uh, it's a, the width is around 35 nanometers. The height is around um, uh, micrometers, sorry, 35 micrometers. The height is around 10 to 15 micrometers and the length is around 200 micrometers. So this is the size that if you have a really, really small thing, this is just so you can just barely make it out by eye so that you can just see that there is something um, and this is the size of these probes we're working with um, in our case this is sort of the, the speciality of the cantilever um, this probe is hollow so so it's a hollow structure and sort of the hollow inside of the of the structure we then later fill with fluids and we use it as a microfluidic channel to to mani manipulate these super small fluids we then actually extract or in, inject into into individual cells and on the apex of the cantilever um, there's a downward facing structure that directly interacts with the sample so we have we have a super small probe that we sort of hover over cells um, and this super small probe uh, at the at the apex has a has a structure at the end that we can directly push um, into into our sample, which is like as I mentioned before, mostly mammalian cells. Um, and this probe we actually then use to sort of extract parts of the cell or to um, inject fluids into individual cells. And um, the speciality of the of the atomic force microscopy uh, microscope is that um, the probe can be pr uh, positioned very precise in left and right, and it uses uh, a force for force feedback mechanism to um, to move the probe and to to hold the probe in certain um, force ranges in that direction. But to explain that maybe is maybe too much too much now. Um, and in our case, the setup is also um, connected to, um, to a spinning disk confocal microscope, so we can sort of watch the manipulations we do in, in real time. Um, and in, in, in sort of the, the discrete um, uh, experiments, then our probe will hover um, over a culture dish in which we have the cells of choice that we, we would like to manipulate. Um, and if you go, on slide number four, on the right side, you would you would see how how such a probe looks um, on a scanning electron microscope uh, copy uh, image. Um, so you can you can sort of see the size ranges of um, of such an individual uh, probe. And in our case, we for this particular study, we designed a new uh, probe type that um, as sort of the the connection piece between the microfluidic channel in the inside and, and sort of the cell then later on as we push the probe inside of the cell has a cylinder that is sharpened on one side so we can have, have sort of like a sharp a syringe like structure that we can push into in individual cells and in previous studies um, this apex usually was was actually a sort of pyramidal uh, pyramid shaped because it was just just easier to produce um, and it really the, the crucial part of this of this technology is this cantilever and within this cantilever sort of the crucial part is um, is the aperture so the, the the opening that actually then connects the fluidic channel to to the inside of the cell as we push our probe um, inside of these cells and sort of the the size of the aperture aperture 
uh, determines the range of fluidic forces you then actually apply once you push the probe inside of the cell. And um, different structures inside of the cell, they require um, different aperture sizes, meaning um, they, they require different, um, different ranges of forces in order to be manipulated. Uh, and by tuning sort of this aperture size, sort of, sort of so the opening of the microfluidic channel, um, we can we can tune which kinds of um, intracellular structures we actually manipulate um, once we apply negative or positive pressure to the microfluidic system. Um, and sort of at the intermediate size, for example, you can you can sample just um, fluids from a cell. Um, containing endoplasmatic reticulum, and at higher sizes, you're also you're also going to be able to manipulate mitochondria, which is sort of the the, the, the topic of today. Um, so after we we manufactured and characterized these these kinds of probes, um, in a first set of experiments, we um, we went to uh, uh, to label fluorescently label mitochondria within U2S cells. Um, to, to manipulate mitochondria within mammalian cells is, um, is really an exciting and special thing. Um, also considering our background, because um, in the evolution of, of eukaryotic cells, mitochondria really, really take a special place within sort of the, the cell architecture. Um, they are really at the, at the sort of center heartpiece of, of cellular energy metabolism. So, so they're really... Uh, important for creating uh, ATP, which is sort of the energy current currency for a for a cell, if you will, and also have have other important cellular functions, and they, but they are also really important for um, deciding cell fate or or um, in, in in sort of if if cells transition in between different um, states. Um, and they are also linked to to other cellular signaling processes like apoptosis. And moreover, they, they are really special because they still contain their own genome. So in, in our cells, actually, there are two genomes. So there's the mitochondrial genome, and then there's sort of the, all of the rest of the DNA, which is inside of the nucleus. And um, the mitochondrial genome is actually something that is super conserved in, in humans and, and also actually across all eukaryotes. But um, as we have sort of CRISPR or talents or sort of certain techniques, to manipulate uh, DNA in the nucleus, it is really, really hard to manipulate um, mitochondrial uh, DNA, um, mostly because uh, as we only have one or two copies of, of DNA in, in the genome, as, as mitochondria stretch um, across, across uh, or all, all over the place within uh, uh, mammalian or eukaryotic cells, they they, con they they harbor thousands of genomes. So while you have only one or two copies of the nuclear genome, you're you're likely to have in, in every individual cells between uh, I think two hundred and thousand copies of the of the mitochondrial genome. So um, it's it's really it's really something that is that is uh, fascinating and, and it's really really hard to manipulate sort of this pool of mitochondrial DNA. Um, also because sort of the the techniques we use to manipulate nuclear DNA, they, they don't really work in, in mitochondrial DNA. So you cannot as easily replace or introduce new variances into, into sort of um, in, into mitochondrial DNA or into mitochondrial genomes.
Um, and also sort of in our perspective, it's really interesting to sort of create the possibility to take a look um, at a single cell and within uh, in, into the heterogeneity that is also there within this mitochondrial population that that is within every individual cell. So that so that is why we we're really interested to uh, manipulate mitochondria in individual cells. And um, on the slide five, you can actually see a U2S cell, which is, is just a bone osteosarcoma cell line where um, I labeled, um, fluorescently labeled the whole uh, mitochondria, actually the, the inside of mitochondria with a fluorescent label. And as we, we push this probe into, into the individual cell and then um, give, give under pressure, so neg negative pressure to the microfluidic system, you can actually see that we remove parts of, of the mitochondrial network um, from from one individual cell where depending on, on where you push the probe inside of the cell, where there are lots of mitochondria or only few, you can sort of uh, either sample just few mitochondrial individual cells or you can can sample um, bigger chunks of the of the mitochondrial genome, which is sort of in the middle panel. Um, and um, sort of we can because sort of these these um, cantilever probes, they are made out of silicon nitride, which is mostly um, which is mostly see through. So you can you can just see inside of the probe and see how much you sampled and what you, what you sampled. Um, so you can actually count count and see and quantify um, after um, extracting part of the mitochondrial network how much or how many mitochondria you extracted. Um, and then once we once we have those mitochondria sampled within the cantilever, um, we can actually um, just um, push out uh, the the sort of sampled liquid wherever. So we can we can just push it out into um, a sampling solution, which we then later on analyze via mass spectrometry or um, or other downstream uh, platforms. Um, or in this case, what what we did in this paper, we can then transfer this mitochondrial content that we extracted from an individual cell, we can later on transfer this uh, into into different cells. Uh, one sort of novel aspect that popped up when when I did these experiments first was that um, mitochondria are mostly organized in, in, in most cell types um, as sort of a, a network, which is sort of um, not not sort of these textbook mitochondria where they are often like um, shown just like discrete spheres that are all over the cell, but mostly they actually organize into sort of a connected tubular network. But once you start sort of physically pulling on this mitochondrial network, um, they change their shape and they, they change it towards uh, what is called a pearls on a string phenotype. So which which is something that really looks like a, like a pearl necklace under the microscope. Um, which is really curious, uh, um, which which made us really curious because you have a sort of force-induced transition of, of mitochondrial shape, and we could show that sort of this this force-induced um, transition of of a tubular mitochondrion into uh, into this process of a string phenotype, then also leads to recruitment of of endogenous proteins that actually then sever this these pearls into discrete discrete spheres. And then these discrete spheres is what you can see inside of the cantilever. And this is actually really important because, um, as I mentioned, 
earlier, mitochondria are really important for sulfate. So if you if you actually damage those mitochondria and in terms of structure, um, the the cell would most likely die because it's sort of a strong trigger of, of cell death or, or apoptosis. Um, so we we can um, sample these mitochondria from cells and then um, in the first set of experiments we went and this would be slide six we went and took these mitochondria and then directly injected them into recipient cells so we we effectively transplanted mitochondria from a cell type a into a cell type b um, which is comparable somewhat somewhat to what what you have in, in standard surgery where you can take organs and put them into another person um, just on a, on a single cell level um, when we when we do this in the beginning from and, and we sort of label both mitochondrial networks so um, we take a fluorescent label a in, in this case red uh, red labeled mitochondria from from sort of the donor cell type and then um, push these mitochondria into uh, into recipient cell type that um, has differentially labeled mitochondria in this in this type blue but uh, it's shown as white um, in the beginning you, you can see that sort of the cell reacts a little bit stressed um, and then in most cases you can actually see that sort of as you have those two mitochondrial populations within an individual cell you can see that these mitochondria then fuse with one another um, which we um, which we termed to be mitochondrial acceptance so this the cell sort of recognizes these particles that we introduced as mitochondria and then fuses them to their own mitochondrial network um, but this is not the case in all cases so in few cases actually um, these new host cells they actually also uh, reject the mitochondrial content that came and then start to degrade them um, which which then results in sort of millions of really really small particles that carry this fluorescent label that was was inside of the mitochondria we uh, initially transferred um, in the beginning we, we just did these kinds of experiments just transplanting mitochondria from cancer cells to cancer cells um, we could, could show that actually the, the procedure is really minimally invasive so i guess in this case it was over 90 percent of the cells actually then survive this procedure so it's they, they're um, happy in all cases um, we can monitor this uh, uptake behavior in real time and in this case sort of the the average number of mitochondria um, was was around six uh, individual particles but there's sort of a spray of, of uh, transferring only one mitochondria into in this case i think the highest number was was 15 individual mitochondria um, in the in the sort of next set of experiments and this would be slide number seven um, we tested whether this also works on primary cells uh, and the reason being for that is that um, sort of there, there are mitochondrial quality control mechanisms in individual cells and these quality control mechanisms actually don't work pretty well anymore in, in cancer cell types or they, they, they degraded some of the key players of, of sort of the known mitochondrial um, quality control mechanisms and if you then um, and, 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 and primary cells still um, have active um, proteins that are part of this pro, uh, mitochondrial quality control machinery. Um, 
So we, uh, we use primary keratinocytes, which is um, skin cells that are um, sort of often also subjected to aging or, or, or um, DNA damage and also mitochondrial damage just by uh, through UV radiation. And we transplanted mitochondria just from, again, from, from these labeled uh, HeLa cancer cells into these primary keratinocytes. And then top panel, you have sort of a time lapse over, over 15 hours where you can see that um, in these really early stages, um, all of those mitochondria are spherical. And then over time, over 15 hours or 15 and a half hours, these, these mitochondria start to fuse to the mitochondrial network and start to fully label the mitochondrial network of, of these recipient cells. Um, so again, we were really curious of, of why, why these mitochondria are actually still, still accepted by this particular cell type. Um, and we analyzed this, this sort of process of um, mitochondrial uptake a, a little bit further. Um, and which we saw in, in some of the cells, sort of the, the mitochondria that we transplanted were sort of rearranged, where, um, where we counted initially uh, a certain number of, of, of mitochondria. So sort of in the, uh, in the graph shown, shown below, I think it was initially like 12 mitochondria. Um, and we saw that sort of, if you, if you just image these cells over time, um, what we could see that is sort of the, the mitochondrial content we put in into individual cells was processed by the host by the host cells and then sort of uh, increased sort of the numbers of particles before um, before these free particles you can see on the on the slide then actually uh, went to fuse within the with with the rest of the mitochondrial network so there, there is some processing going on but we're not quite sure yet of of, of what what these cells actually then do uh, or, or how this processing of, of, of transplanted mitochondria takes place. Um, what we could show, though, that um, the sort of the, the state of mitochondria uh, that is being transferred um, from 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 a cell type A to cell type B doesn't really matter for this for this uptake process. So we um, we treated the donor cell population where we extracted the mitochondria from with the, with different um, chemical treatments and drugs. And in all cases, um, the, 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 those damaged mitochondria, the majority of them was still taken up um, in those recipient cells, even though sort of these, these drugs we used, they were are sort of, sort of these standard drugs that are used if you wanna um, study DNA uh, mitochondrial degradation. So they are sort of inducers of mitochondrial degradation in cell types. But if you actually just have a small population of these um, sort of mitochondria that would be normally de degraded in their host cell type and you transfer them, then this new host cell will not necessarily start to degrade them. Um, but it will usually wait for a rescue and then, and then still sort of rescue this small uh, mitochondrial subpopulation and integrate it into its own, its own network. Um, sort of this was sort of these, these sort of really short-term obse uh, observations we made when um, transplanting mitochondria. And on the longer term, it's really interesting to see whether the mitochondrial um, genomes that we um, sort of co-transplant with, um, trans with, with, with transplanting the, the mitochondrial mass into, into new cells, whether this um, 
these genomes are actually also propagated within new cell types or whether sort of these cell types have a preference for their own mitochondrial genomes and will sort of maybe take the proteins in the beginning, but then um, not continue to to replicate the new types of, of, of mitochondrial DNA we, we entered into these, uh, these particular cells. And we could show that um, if we use mitochondria from cell type A, in our, in our case, HeLa cells, and uh, introduce these mitochondria into a population of, of recipient cells, oh, sorry, in our case, it was, we took mitochondria from U2S cells, put them into HeLa cells, um, and then we wanted to check whether we can still find the, um, the mitochondrial variances of, of these U2S cells in, in HeLa cells once, once those cells have grown for, uh, for a couple of doublings. Actually, in our case, it was two weeks. Um, and we could show that um, sort of the, depending on, on the amount of mitochondria that we transferred into new cells, um, these mitochondria are, are, or the mitochondrial genomes are actually maintained within within um, the different um, cell types. So there is no inherent preference for mitochondrial genomes, at least at least not uh, in the particular cell type in the particular um, media we used. Um, and we could do this because uh, mitochondria do have certain variances, and so they have single nucleotide polymorphisms. So their DNA uh, differs, but, but only just a little bit in, in individual positions. And you can use those to actually then distinguish on a very high resolution um, the content of, of um, the, the, the genomic content of, of mitochondria of individual cells. So this brings me to the, to the end of my talk. Um, if you have any questions or, or, uh, or something, uh, please, please uh, say something. Uh, otherwise, I can, I can uh, of course, tell you to, to sort of read the paper because this is just a small, small uh, show over, over, uh, over what I did in, the, in this particular project. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you for yeah, thank you. this amazing um, presentation. It's such an interesting work and I shared a little bit in the chat what um what implications your work has uh you know what what it could be applied for in the future. Uh, are you planning like will your next work um be still um related to this or um, do you, do you uh, yeah, yes, somewhat. So, so we still have, so there actually lately there have been, um, several publications relatively recently on, on sort of mitochondrial, um, transfer actually happening in, in tissues in certain conditions. Um, so we're, we're sort of cells rescue other cells via, via giving them some good mitochondria in order to, to sort of rescue their mitochondrial pool. Um, and this is really something um, that, that, that's really interesting. And it's sort of really hard to sort of properly, the, these studies, uh, to, 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 to properly um, reinvestigate these kinds of occurrences because sort of there's no other proper natural way in order to, to transplant mitochondria in between individual cells. Um, right now, I have two more projects on, the, on this particular topic on, on sort of cancer cells influencing other cells by transferring mitochondria. And the other one is 
on mitochondrial quality control, um, which are still very directly uh, related to this topic. And um, sort of as a group, coming from microbiology, we are more interested in, in sort of the um, endosymbiotic history of mitochondria. So we are we're trying to learn to understand how, how sort of endosymbionts came into place and how endosymbi endosymbiosis um, work and, and how sort of the how of the how how do bacteria become organelles sort of uh, this transition is, is what we're working on on right now and therefore we apply this technique as well to sort of manipulate mitochondria and to to manipulate um, bacteria or endosymbionts that are also sort of mitochondrial sized within um, eukaryotic cells or, or within yeah mammalian cell systems also that's so interesting so that's would so you know um how would it be okay to transfer mitochondria a different mitochondria type into a human cell like from another human that might be different that would be one question and then like if there's some sort of type of rejection response if one would do so and then the other thing I think is interesting that mitochondria are so highly conserved, but they have a quite high mutation rate throughout an organism's or a cell life. Um, are you looking also into, since you mentioned like you're interested in like the evolution of mitochondria, um, are you also looking into how that is? Because it could give us insights into you know, rejuvenation technology, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So actually, this is um, yeah. This this is also <laughs> something something we are looking for in the future. Um, there there's still so many open questions in in sort of cell biology of how actually cells are able to select for good or bad mitochondria. I guess this is this is sort of the the, the, the main question we're, we're also working on because um, depending on cell type and cell state, there are some selection procedures known for, for sort of good or bad mitochondria, actually mostly in the germline. So um, for um, for embryos or, or, or in, in Drosophila, actually, there, there, there's, it is known that there are selection processes where cells are able to select for good mitochondrial genome variances. Um, but in somatic cells, and in, in this study, we work mostly with somatic cells, it's actually not known whether this is just a purely random process where you have mutation and you have propagation and then these cells just go, go on and on and on. And um, if you're unlucky, sort of you, you catch sort of a bad, um, a bad population of mitochondria or whether there, there are some cleansing processes and and this is really not known. There are mitochondrial, um, there are diseases uh, associated with with uh, mitochondrial, um, with 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 sort of diseased uh, mitochondrial genomes, or, or sort of with, with DNA uh, mitochondrial genome variances that that sort of cause these diseases, and sort of finding out how actually sort of this cleansing process works in the germline could could then help to activate these processes in in patients that. Do have problems with their with their mitochondrial content, so so this is sort of the the direction of really finding out how, how stuff is working. Yeah, sorry for taking. Yeah, sorry for taking so many questions, but that's so interesting because my theory is 
for mental health, you know, and neuroscience, that almost everything is maybe mitochondria related and how chronic inflammation with like bad ATP production, like with high pollution can lead to all kinds of disorders, yeah. especially in the brain where so much energy is needed um, all the time. So I think an interesting evolutionary question is that I have, and I don't have any funding anyways, to <laughs> study, is with change, changes in having less scarcity in developed countries uh, for generations now, right? We, we never had any animal living in conditions where you don't have to worry about food all your life for generations, yeah. probably. If that threshold changes, do the germline cells become more picky? Like, do like fertilization processes become more picky because we have such such a big amount abundancy of resources that yeah. that that you know we the threshold for turning into an embryo will be higher is there any indication for that um sort of across humans it's it's really tough or let's say across m mammals it's, it's really tough to judge um because sort of the the mitochondrial genes and the mitochondrial gene content within mammals is really conserved so it's always those so those 13 proteins it's still coding for um i think actually if you if you and, and, and sort of, but, but if you cross, if you look across different eukaryotes, for example, in yeast, um, yeast only has nine mitochondrial genes. So across eukaryotes, sort of the, the genome, there are, there are really large changes in, in mitochondrial genome content. So, or sort of plants or still have, uh, plants really have, have less problems with energy and, and their mitochondrial genomes are also way bigger. So there, there is sort of a, a selection pressure on that. Um, but sort of um, even even given that that we always are really well supplied with food, um, I wouldn't say that um, that that this is the main driver for selection of, of on mitochondrial genomes, even on a single cell level. Because even as you have a lot of food, this can this can still be a problem uh, for certain for certain cell types because you you always need active mitochondria, even if you have super high glucose all the time. Um, you still need active mitochondria in order to produce amino acids in order to to have the cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so my theory is that it becomes more picky, so more fine-tuned. Like, because we only have like it takes forever to grow into a full-term human. It's yeah, very expensive yeah, yeah. for a female. So I thought maybe the the more resources one has, the more pickier the system can become. And ah, with okay, that, yeah. having more infertile, like infertility with certain partners, but then with other partners, it works pretty well. And I thought maybe the system is just becoming pickier because it has the the abundancy to spread out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's just my uh, this, personal yeah, theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. This is a super interesting theory, but it's really totally dark matter. <laughs> It's really, really, really unknown. It is known that um, sort of the, there are partner mismatches where sort of so sort of, mitochondria always come from the mother. So in all organisms, so 
you you actually sort of all all the mitochondria you inherit they they always come from the mom and usually there are no though no mitochondria coming from the father um and there are known known cases where mitochondria the, the mitochondrial genome of the mother actually doesn't fit the, the sort of nuclear genome of the father and then you have you actually have couples that that are unable to get children because of that but how that mechanism works is, is really totally unknown there's there's really no no one no one knows how sort of the, the crosstalk between a nuclear genome and, and mitochondrial genome actually works and, and what sort of the these the selection pressure there is yeah that's yeah right. that's right so <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry for taking so many questions everyone please go ahead flash your mics and ask your question thank you Okay, I'll go first. Um, first, Dr. Christopher, thank you so much for your fascinating talk. I had a few questions. Um, the What is the reproduction rate and the error correction rate of um, mitochondria and HeLa cells? Why are they the ideal cell? This is a very common cell that's used in these sorts of experiments. And also, when you brought up the matrilineal passage of mitochondria, I was curious how that works in hermaphroditic organisms such as zebrafish. Okay, I, I, I guess you have to, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask uh, later for, for more questions. Sort of the, the reproduction rate of mitochondrial genomes is, um, oh, that's a, that's a really tough one. To be honest, I'm not quite sure. It's known that, that, of course, once per cell divisions, um, per cell division, sort of the, the mitochondrial genome is um, is sort of uh, reproduced once, but sort of the turnover of of all the mitochondrial genomes, to my knowledge, is not really known how how high actually the turnover rate is. If you if you look at an individual cell, also because sort of now there's a theory that are sort of um, diverse subpopulations of mitochondrial genomes where some of them are replicated more than others. Um, so, to my knowledge, um, this is this is not really well known. There, it is known that there's heterogeneity within the replication rate, um, but yeah, to, to my knowledge, on a on a single cell level, this is really this is really unknown. It is also not known how actually the the number of, um, of mitochondrial genomes per cell is regulated. So if you if you remove or deplete a mitochondrial genomes within individual cell types, which you can do by drugs by by adding some drugs, um, the cell afterwards will will go back to its original state with the same number of genomes. Um, but it's not known how how this this type of regulation works. Sorry, could you could you uh, say your second uh, question again? Sure. The, uh, sure well, the, uh, the, well, the second part was the what's the error correction rate? And then the second question itself was why are HeLa cells ideal for these types uh, of okay. um, sort of the error correction rate? It's it's out there, <laughs> but I'm but I'm actually not quite sure. I know that the mutation rate is higher. Sort of mitochondria have their own polymerase. Um, but um, and in its error correction rate, I think is 10 times higher than so no, the the error rate is ten times higher than um, the than the one from the, the nuclear poly polymerase. So the 
the, the average error rate within mitochondria is higher and also the mutation rate is higher, likely because they are reactive oxygen species. Um, in our study, we work with HeLa cells just because they are sort of easy to work with. Um, that's also why we just we just used them as a um, in, in, in sort of the initial experiments when we when we just tried to see whether we can actually um, make it work to um, um, to to extract and transplant mitochondria from individual cells. Um, but for actually studying mitochondrial um, um, mitochondria or mitochondrial dynamics, they're 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 totally not ideal. Um, mostly because they lack parkin and, and parkin is, um, is, is uh, associated to Parkinson's disease and it's associated to Parkinson's disease because it has some some way of of, um, of controlling mitochondrial quality um, and this this mechanism doesn't work anymore in, in healer cells so um, initially we'd really just work them because they are sort of easy to hold uh, lab pets and that's also why we then then later on move to um, to primary keratinocytes because they are sort of more a more relevant cell type. Um, and then the last question was something on Daniel Rerio. Could you could you ask this one again? Sure. Sure. Uh, the, uh, knowing that lipid mitochondria is the way that it's passed on, how does that work in organisms that are hermaphroditic, such as zebrafish and other organisms? Um, you mean you mean uh, in between different um, generations? Yeah. So from ah uh, okay. Uh, ooh, in zebrafish, I'm actually not quite sure how 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 the passing on there. I I know I know for human mouse and and Drosophila and yeast, <laughs> and in all of them, there is a selection mechanism that makes sure that only one of the mitochondrial population survives. So um, in, uh, in humans and mice and drosophila, it's always the, the, the female mitochondrial population that, that will make it to the offspring. So that's why I guess it's the same in, in, um, in zebrafish. And in yeast, um, yeast cells fuse. And then if you have whole cell fusion, um, obviously, the, you, you ha in, initially you have both pools of mitochondria together within an individual cell, and then once you once you grow those yeasts yeast cells again after fusion, they have some way of um, separating their mitochondrial genomes again, and then sort of the offsprings will only have either um, the mitochondrial genome of sort of the previously fused cell type A or cell type B, but never mixed populations, but how this is working no one no one knows to to my knowledge more mystery yeah that's the beautiful thing about science right the more questions you ask the more um, answers you find and then more questions you have even <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but it's, yeah those, those are really tough to answer questions that was great thank you can we see a flash of mics who else has a question i see dr shaw and lt Welcome. Okay, LT, I saw your mic flash first, and then we'll pass to Dr. Shaw next. Go ahead. Okay, thank you, Chris. Um, my question is, um, is you, when you're in your slide number eight, you made like a, a, a few points. The last point, you were saying that the fluent FM methods extracted mitochondria is more effective than the bulk 
extract the mitochondria. Uh, okay. Yes, give you a recall. Uh, sorry, I, yeah. I, I skimmed I skimmed over that point. So oh, you skimmed. That I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's something. It's something I, I I should have mentioned. But um, of course, there, there are also protocols where you can just purify mitochondria from individual cells, and then you just have have pure mitochondrial extracts. Um, and of course, we can also just put these pure mitochondrial extracts um, into the microfluidic channel of our probes and then directly um, inject previously like, sort of bulk purified mitochondria from individual cells and then just directly inject these into individual cells, which sort of creates a higher throughput. Um, but we found that, that sort of the, um, the extraction protocols that, that you um, have to use in order to and purify mitochondria from, from, from sort of a bulk population of, of individual cells um, often leads to sort of a, a damage of the outer membrane of, of those mitochondria. And we didn't really find a protocol where, where we have like the, the super perfect, perfectly uh, structurally preserved mitochondria. Um, uh, after, after this uh, purification protocol, and then, and, and this leads to the fact that if we um, inject those mitochondria that we bulk purified into individual cell types, then um, the uptake rate is lower compared to the to the direct extraction of individual cells. So if we directly extract them with fluid FM and then transfer them directly within a minute or so into a new new cell, so the uptake rate and, and the maintenance of mitochondrial um, genomes is higher compared to uh, using mitochondrial extracts. Okay, okay, thank you. So it's more the unstretched, more yeah. like a complete, it's better. Thank you. That's it. Thank you so much. <laughs> we really appreciate these questions. They All the questions just make the room better and they allow us to um, really learn even more about what you've come here to share. Christoph, thank you. Dr. Shah, the mic is yours. Thank you so much, Victoria. So thank you, Christoph. That was a wonderful I mean, presentation. My question is about the cancer because you mentioned about it and we know that one of the challenges in immunotropy specifically is the mitochondrial I mean, reaction to the immunotropy and the other different approaches, as you know, that such as checkpoint inhibitor and I mean, CAR T cell specifically is my question, if you have further information around that, because specifically I was wondering about the mitochondrial pyruvate carrier and uh, this process. Do you have any further information or did you notice anything during the, I mean, transplanting of the mitochondrial? Does it impact it to this cycle or not? To, to sort of, you, you mean to recycle Sorry, to MPC um, cycles, the, the mitochondrial pyruvate carrier. Ah, okay. Have you heard about that? Ah, uh, yeah, I, I, I heard about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, this is actually we are something we are, so we are not, not quite there yet. Um, we are trying to, to actually couple mitochondrial transplantation towards um, analytic tools of cell metabolism. To sort of see how much of an impact actually mitochondrial transplantation has on has on sort of the energy state of individual cells and, and whether this actually makes a difference or not also because sort of we have those publications where um, people describe that mitochondrial transfer takes place in nature um, 
but this is this is also something we're, we're working um, on right now. So so we're not quite there yet. So maybe maybe in a year or two, I can I can give an answer on that. <laughs> sure. And sure. Uh, any base base on whatever you shared with us, uh, you just your experiment was include one time, right? I mean, you didn't, for example, apply. Uh, multiple times of the regimen over the mitochondrial after transplantation, right? Uh, so, so, so what, what For is example, uh, after, I, I just after transplantation? I was just wondering, did you have this experiment of the, for example, for the radiation therapy for, I mean, checking of the quality or such a thing? Yeah. You, you didn't have a couple of the cycles or you just, how you check that? Ah, uh, sort of the the the, the uh, with the drug treatments, you, the experiments, yes. you mean? Yes. Um, sort of we 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 also we always um, uh, repeated each each experiment um, three times, and sort of the um, the way we evaluated this was was always um, we we made a transplantation and then we did um, time lapse microscopy on these individual cells um, after the after the treatment. So in our case, the treatment was CCCP, which is an uncoupler doxycycline, which is a drug that acts on, on, on mitochondrial genomes. Um, and then H2O2, just as a, as a general sort of radical and damaging uh, mitochondria. Um, and, and in each, each of those experiments, we, we sort of treated the um, donor cell population with um, these different kinds of drugs or agents for different amount of times, whatever was reported in the literature, which was sufficient in order to trigger cellular responses towards uh, mitochondrial degradation. Um, and then we, we started extracting those mitochondria and, and, and put them into the keratinocytes. Um, and then in, in, in each of those uh, three replicates we, we did for each uh, experiments, we then followed each individual cell and checked um, whether um, it was uh, able to, uh, or whether how how it would sort of act um, in answer to um, receiving these these types of damaged mitochondria, um, whether it would would directly fuse them to to their own mitochondrial network, whether it would degrade them, or whether it would sort of rearrange and then fuse them. Um, so, so our readout in, in that case was was always uh, just just optical microscopy. Um, we are working now actually on on using on using uh, as I said before direct metabolical couplers in order to see how how much or how fast they are able to recover once they are um, inside of those cells, or whether they recover first and then fuse, or whether fusion itself is is sort of the the recovery um, process there. Does this answer your question? Sure. Three sure. times same goes. Thank you. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, Jamie, we haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say thank you very, very much for your talk, Doctor. That was incredibly interesting. Um, First of all, uh, my question is, I was looking at your paper, and when you wrote in your paper that fusion with the mitochondrial network of recipient cells, you said it occurred 
20 minutes after transplantation. Yeah. Um, I find myself wondering, why 20 minutes? Is there some kind of thing that happens in the cell that it, I don't know, checks every 20 minutes to make sure something's missing? Or does it just, is there something else deeper happening that takes 20 minutes to begin this process of fusion? Or? Um, so, so why exactly it's tw <laughs> it was 20 minutes is, is, is tough to tell. What is known is that um, mitochondrial fusion requires um, connection of, of the mitochondria to the cytoskeleton. <clears throat> and then it also <clears throat> requires um, certain proteins to, to attach to the outer, um, to the outer surface of, of mitochondria. So my guess is that um, once we remove those mitochondria, obviously from the cytoskeleton, from, from an individual cell, um, and then they, they are still surrounded by um, parts of the cytoplasm from the original cell, there, there is just some time frame um, which it, in which in which it takes to sort of link these mitochondria then to um, to the cytoskeleton or or, or sort of the fusion structures um, that that sort of that 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 will then um, lead to fusion within the recipient cell. I just think that sort of that process takes some time. Um, it could also be that sort of since we are actively push, pushing um, a physical probe into the cell um, that that sort of stresses the cell in the beginning and then sort of um, just just takes some time to get going again um, but yeah usually sort of the, the transplant once we once we put it into the recipient cell it sort of it really takes some time in, in which you don't see the mitochondria move at all so they really stick to the to the place and sort of in the formation you individually put them into individual cell and then at some point they start moving and fusing so sort of and once they are they are they start to move then they they when they were also um fuse relatively rapidly so i think that's that's why i think that sort of this connection to the to the side of skeleton just takes some time that's interesting and is that since i've got no frame of reference is that considered quite quick or uh, for the cells to behave this way or is that quite slowly like, did, you, did you have any expectation or could you just put it in there and just cross your fingers and hope that it would connect <laughs> no to be, to be honest we didn't have have any expectation expectation in the beginning we thought that probably most of the cells will die <laughs> because um sort of mitochondria contain cytochrome c um and once mitochondria are damaged, this, this cytochrome C might leak into, into the cytoplasm. And cytochrome C is sort of a really known strong agent causing apoptosis. So actually we thought that probably we would damage the mitochondria too much to, during our extraction process. And then they would always kill the recipient cells. <laughs> so that they fused at all was, was a surprise actually. Um, and then the rest is just just descriptive, so we didn't have have any expectations. But perhaps, of course, messing with um, with protein levels that that manage mitochondrial fusion might have an impact on on the velocity of this uptake process. But oh, uh, we didn't yeah. test it this yet. Ah, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's um, another question I have is um, when you were saying before that mitochondrial DNA uh, is prone to having 
disease causing mutations. Um, I, I was thinking, since I don't really know this field very well or anything, uh, so please forgive me for the silly question, but is, is this similar to um, what, what they say about um, our normal cells when they replicate over and over over time, you know, they, they give way to mutation. That's when we get cancers and things like that. It's just mm -hmm. the same principle with the mitochondrial DNA, like when it's replicating itself. Is it the same same phenomena? Um, I guess it's the same phenomenon. So sort of sort of yeah, since since sort of the DNA polymerase um, introduces errors. Um, the more replication or more cell replication would also likely um, lead to more to a higher likelihood of, of having a sort of disease phenotypes in mitochondria but since you have so many copies of mitochondrial genomes it's not like like one or two um, sort of uh, replications going wrong actually actually makes a difference so it is known that if you have if you have sort of a disease causing mutational patterns a pattern within your mitochondrial genomes, oftentimes, um, like 60% of the of the population, so let's say 600 out of 1000 uh, mitochondrial genomes within an individual cell actually need to have need to have this particular um, mutations in order to to give rise to a disease state phenotype. While if you only have 40% of, of, of mitochondrial genomes damaged, then, then you won't get the disease phenotype. So it's, it's not like this one zero response you would, you would have from cancer cells or from other cell types. So it's a much more, more sort of mild um, selection process. And often, oftentimes these, since they are inherited from, from, from mother to daughter, um, oftentimes, um, you, you you can have you can have these things in a family and then just stochastically um one or two family members might get it and others won't just 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 out of pure sort of uh, stochastic randomness and, and distribution of of how mitochondrial genomes are inherited and, and are damaged over time yeah wow. and I'll, I'll, I'll have another one please if that's okay um I saw, and I hadn't heard of this before, but you were speaking in your um, paper about an atomic force microscope. Uh, I hadn't actually heard of this before. Is that as cool as it sounds? Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, sort of. Um, sort of the the whole technology is based on atomic force microscopy. Um, and atomic force microscopy is sort of a technique that actually was invented, I think, back in the eighties. Um, and originally, this this technique is really used to resolve nanostructures, sort of in, in, in soft lithography or in chip production, or or actually it is also used sort of to to image single atoms. So this was this were sort of the, the roots of these techniques of, of really having super super high resolution of um, of structures, also in, in high vacuum, and then after some time this this particular atomic force microscopy platform then then sort of transitioned also into into life sciences um, uh, so yeah the, the basis of our technique so so the machine we use is sort of a rebuilt atomic force microscope um, which which still sort of offers um, the resolution in principle to um, to create really high resolution sort of force profiles um, of the of the cells we manipulate and 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 we 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 need this technique actually to sort of enter the probe 
um, in a force within into those cells that doesn't kill them. So if you if you imagine having something microscopic, uh, microscopic uh, like a pipette and, and trying to push this into an individual cell, in all cases, you would kill it. Um, and that's why we, we, we need this um, atomic force microscopy to, um, to actually get really good positioning and, and hold a still position um, within individual cells during our manipulation steps. Yeah. That is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I, I actually have one last one. I'll, I'll drop it really quickly so I don't take up all the, the stage time. But um, given the technology thing, uh, you mentioned in the paper as well, fabrication of tips with customized aperture areas, right? Was yeah. this something that you had to um, talk to specific engineers about to make this specifically for this kind of testing? or were these developed for other things somewhere else? Were you just catching um, up to see what engineers have and using it? No, so so we're we're working um, directly with uh, with a company that um, that produces these these AFM cantilevers. Um, it's it's called SmartTip in the Netherlands because the the platform we are using is also um, commercialized, and with them we we develop these these kinds of probes and. Um, the, the probe processing as it's going now is actually that is that they sort of produce somewhat um, um, prototypes so so sort of raw molds um, of these um, probes we're using um, and then if they produce it they produce it on, on sort of a wafer based scale these are sort of techniques that are used usually for um, computer chip production mostly sort of it's, it's sort of the, the, the same um, technological background. Um, but some of the structures, some of the nuances they, they actually can produce because um, yeah, it, it just has certain constraints of, of producing these structures. Um, and, that, and that's where we actually step in and, and sort of um, taking further uh, modification steps on, on those structures. And, and what we do is sort of um, destructive um, destructive manufacturing where you have where you have a certain structure in our case this cantilever if you if you will if you if you want to see it it's on slide four um you have a cantilever and it's actually sort of the 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 aperture sort of the the um uh, actually this the side that that connects the fluids to the outside um this this part always needs to be relatively sharp um and in order to make it sharp um, we cut away parts using um, focused ion beam, which is uh, a technology where you use um, gallium ions uh, and and uh, destructively just can can remove parts of the of the cantilevers by by shooting at it with um, with gallium ions. So it's um, it's called uh, focused ion beam. Uh, it's which is always coupled with electron microscopy. So it's. Yeah, it's it's sort of a special a special area of, of manufacturing to actually um, make it work to produce those probes. Yeah. That is amazing. That is thank amazing. you very much for indulging my questions and thank you very much <laughs> for your talk. And Christoph, we've had you here over an hour. I see that we have uh, Tamar and Eli on stage. Is it okay? Oh, sorry, I'm walking by a lawnmower. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they ask you a question or um, do we need yeah, to say goodbye? Sure. I mean, <laughs> no, I think I think one or two more questions are fine. Yeah, so we've got one or two more questions. Um, Tamar, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question? Oh, thank you. 
I just uh, took the end of the talk, but um, yes, I think when we uh, think about mitochondria, we think about uh, the age, the living age. This will interfere somehow. Um, whether yeah, yeah, I mean there are there are some some relations to this because there's sort of the um, there's this whole mitochondrial hypothesis of aging that that sort of as as there's no active selection process for for mitochondria in, in our cells that that we know of at least um, there there is a hypothesis that that sort of all aging happens because sort of the pools of mitochondria actually degrade within the individual cells and then of course if you actually enter sort of fresh or, or young mitochondria into individual cells that this would have sort of have have positive feedback for the for the rest of the cell and sort of uh, rejuvenate these these individual cells um yeah this is this is this is actually something as i said we we're we are also interested in, in how sort of feedback of of metabolic state of of, of mitochondria and uh, how this how this then relates to the state of the whole cell um, so it's it's definitely sort of a, a relevant question. Um, we're just not quite there yet. So so there is a hypothesis. Um, there are sort of indications that that's, this sort of uh, is happening um, within cells, but how the exact me mechanisms are is, is actually unknown. We just know that it's uh, it's related to the quality of of mitochondria and of mitochondrial genomes, but it's not like a direct on-off thing. Um, it's just known that if you have bad qualities and, and sort of high mutation rate of mitochondrial uh, of mitochondria, then sort of the the aging process is sped up uh, dr drastically. Um, but but how again how how this is actually working is, is still a big unknown. Tamara, friend, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, just appreciate it. it's a really interesting research. Thank you. Fantastic question. Thank you, Tamar. And uh, so, Christoph, we have one more, I believe. Eli, we haven't heard from you today. Yeah, hi. So, sorry, I drank Hello. Uh, sounds pretty fascinating. Um, so, so quick quick comment. I actually um, did do atomic force microscopy and scanning tunneling microscopy for uh, a number of years. Um, and I'll just mention that uh, uh, AFM in vacuum, very challenging there to at least to get uh, um, single atom resolution that only happened, if I remember correctly, in like 2015 or 2016 fluorine atoms uh, or fluorine molecules on a surface. Um, they actually did manage to, to resolve the single bonds, uh, which is truly amazing. It's much more challenging than it would seem, um, but uh, it had been used for uh, um, cell imaging in the 90s. Um, I'll spare everybody a, a particular situation or, or account of my cells being looked at by an expert in mythology. <laughs> um, but um, so uh, what I wanted to ask was, um, uh, are you considering or are you aware of any similar work on chloroplasts, especially um, looking at uh, um, the effects, the, you know, ways of improving crops by introducing uh, chlor chloroplasts from different organisms into, uh, say, staple crops? Oh, 
Um, so actually, we had trials on, on trying to manipulate organisms that harbor chloroplasts. Um, in, in, in our case, this, this mostly didn't work um, because, yeah, uh, th those cells are really fragile and, and sort of all, all plant cells have a, a rigid cell wall on the outside. And once you once you make a hole in the cell wall, it's um, those cells usually uh, usually die relatively rapidly. Um, whether actually sort of the thing is in crop yield is that usually um, I think the, the chloroplast quality is not is not sort of the thing that is uh, is missing. So because plant cells so plant cells get their ATP from chloroplasts. Um, through photosynthesis, but um, usually they they really have lots of ATP all the time because photosynthesis just just works so well. Um, what I know that that sort of is is limiting for them is actually um, nitrogen uh, and uh, creating nitrogen and um, create and getting enough uh, phosphorus. And there are lots of uh, attempts to try to engineer. Uh, plants that can fix their own nitrogen. So, so I mean, 80% of the air is nitrogen, but fixing it actually doesn't. This is only being done by some some few um, bacteria in the soil. And there are uh, efforts really to try to um, engineer uh, plant cells in order to to get these traits from from those bacteria. Um, but for crop yield, I guess sort of chloroplasts. Or, or chloroplast quality, at least I think it's um, is, is not sort of the the limiting the limiting factor. So I, I don't know of of engineering um, approaches that that sort of went into that direction, but rather into the nitrogen fixation problem. Yeah, the the, the um, there there I. Had been looking at uh, efforts that are being made to uh, um, get cyanobacteria that fix nitrogen to become endosymbionts. Uh, it's interesting work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yet, to my knowledge, it doesn't doesn't work yet. So, but there there are really huge efforts in order to to get this done. Is there a way to make a bread head cells? Like, Sorry, I, I didn't understand you uh, acoustically. Could you could you repeat the question? Yeah, sure. Is there a way, like in whole cell patch clamp recording, we have the alternative to use a perforated patch? So instead of uh, rupturing the um, or punctuating the membrane physically or mechanistically, you use a compound that makes little pores that you can prolong basically the lifetime of that connection. Is there something like that maybe for plant cells? I don't know. Uh, like to, to create pores, yeah. I mean, yeah, the problem is really the cell wall, usually, <laughs> to, to my knowledge, at least, that where, where actually, yeah, you have, this, you have this rigid cell wall around cells, uh, and then you have, you have sort of you have that problem you can remove it but then those cells are really fragile and die fast so yeah it's really it could be but yeah yeah neuron yeah, yeah. that makes, that like, makes like, 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 like 
makes little pores. Mm. You can some ions. Some ions. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I do. Yeah, I. Yeah, you answered I, a lot of questions. We took up a lot of your time, and but thank you so much. This is such an interesting research topic and your presentation was really great and great to follow and yeah it's it's so interesting so i think your work will have a lot of applications and a lot of um different disease models and also um rejuvenation and all kinds of stuff so it's really important and i wish you all the funding and the least bureaucratic hurdles <laughs> <laughs> and the transition to boston so yeah fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll be fine and um yeah uh, thank you everyone for coming and asking all these questions um to make this um discussion really interesting and um yeah thank you so much everyone and if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We'll have more um, interesting talks coming up. We'll have actually later today, uh, Dr. Uyin from um, talking about building complexity in biological design spaces. Um, he's at the university at CUNY. Um, it's a new institute. He's a director there for um, nano engineering, so it will be really interesting. And tomorrow we have a dog's room, um, how dogs recognize dog and human emotions. Usually uh, species don't really care about the emotions of other species, but dogs are really good at recognizing human emotions and to talk about that. And on Saturday we'll have Dr. Uh, Chang, she will talk about how, how she uses molecular orbital-based machine learning. Um, it's a really interesting paper. So yeah, thank you everyone. And um, a special thanks to you, Christoph, and good luck for everything. Thank you. Thanks and for the invitation, Christoph, and good luck in Boston. <laughs> yeah, good luck in Boston. Um, and yeah, maybe you'll want to come back again. We, If you listen to any replays, you'll see we have a collective curiosity. We can keep you here for a really long time if you'd like. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, thank you, everyone. Hopefully you'll come back later. That will be a really interesting talk. And um, yeah, thank you. Hear you all soon. <laughs> Bye everyone. Bye. Bye everyone. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Three. Bye. 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 Bye.